Thank you, Kent and Barbara, for our music. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. Tonight, we are in the book of Hosea, chapter 14, the last chapter of the book, and we will finish up our study in Hosea tonight at the end of uh, this book as we kind of, uh, in the last few chapters, took the prophetic parts of these chapters, not everything in between. You know, the, the prophets commonly end in their books with some view of the future. It's a, it's a very typical, common thing. Isaiah gets to the end of his book, and from chapter 40 to the end of the book, uh, he's talking about the kingdom of God and then the new heaven and the new earth at, at the end of his book. Ezekiel, in the last 10 chapters of his book, uh, describes the millennial city and the millennial uh, temple that will be rebuilt on the hills of Jerusalem. Zechariah, chapter 14 of, his, uh, of that minor prophet, we see the Jesus descending from heaven and his feet standing on the Mount of Olives and putting an end to the battle of Armageddon. And then by the end of the book, people are going up to Jerusalem to worship and see the king. So, and Daniel uh, uh, is told by the Lord at the end of his book, uh, you know, go your way, Daniel, because in the end, you will stand in your lot at the end of the days. There will be the promised land. You'll be there. So don't worry about that. So this is the way prophets often end their books. So here... Uh, the, the title in my uh, study Bible says, The Promise to Restore Israel. And really that's what's happening here. I, I title it Israel in the Kingdom. And so uh, Israel's prophecy that we have seen now for uh, the first 13 chapters describes Israel as faithfulness and then unfaithfulness, then faithfulness, then unfaithfulness. And when you read, of course, the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, you know, it's almost frustrating to read the, all of these kings and prophets and everybody, and Israel falls into sin, and God punishes them. Then they come back out, and they're faithful. Then they fall back in. Then they're faithful again, and it just goes that way. So Hosea here, of course, uh, is a, preaches to that. And even his own life was a picture of it. You marry a woman that's going to be unfaithful. And uh, yet when she strays, you go get her and bring her back. And God has done that with Israel all through their history. Uh, and uh, in the end, uh, he will restore her uh, to all the promises that he's given. So, you know, the, the scripture, by the way, has promises even for the earth. This, this world that God made hasn't yet been what it will be in the kingdom of God. Well, in the, in the uh, Garden of Eden, it was pretty close. No sin had entered in. But we haven't seen anything yet. We haven't seen what God will do with this world that he created. I'm going to quote a few verses later uh, or read a few verses about how the earth is going to be productive and bring forth its fruit in the kingdom of God. But God has a plan for Israel, and that will all be fulfilled. And we're reading some of it here in chapter 14. And throughout the prophet, you know, these are Jewish prophets and books. And uh, they explain the promises that God has made for them and how they will be regathered and they'll be in Israel and Jesus will be there with them. David will be there and all the resurrected Old Testament saints. And they'll have all of these blessings that God uh, promised them. 
God has a, a plan for the church. For you and I, as the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, we will live and reign with Christ for a thousand years in that kingdom of God. In glorified bodies, in resurrected, glorified bodies, not capable even of sin. And uh, we will uh, rule and reign for Christ and with him for a thousand years. So in chapter 14 of Hosea, uh, Hosea is describing what is happening when the Lord returns in glory. You remember that they didn't see the rapture like you and I know it because it's revealed in the New Testament. They saw Christ coming back in glory and then bringing in his kingdom, punishing the evildoers and all of that, and bringing the, the blessings to Israel. That's kind of what chapter 14 is about. So notice uh, as we break this down, and since we're doing all nine verses, we're taking about three verses at a time, uh, four and then two at the end. So first of all, we find that Israel, in those days when the Lord returns, Israel's going to repent. And they're going to return to the Lord. So we have that call. Verse 1, O Israel, return to the Lord your God. Now, God can say that at any time. Chapter 6, verse 1, he said it. This is the second time he's, he said these very same words. Return to the Lord your God. So even historically, back in those days when Israel sinned, the prophets came and called them back to God, and they had to repent and come back to God. Well, there's coming a day when the Lord himself will return and call them all back, and they will come back. They are full of sin. Notice verse 2, uh, the word iniquity. In verse 4, the word backsliding. In, the word, in, the, in verse 8, the word idolatry. So even as the Lord comes back in glory, they will put these sins away that they have had, and they will return back. And I spoke to you last, uh, last time from uh, Hosea about how the Lord is going to call them back to the land. Remember, when he returns to the earth, the Jews are spread all over the world at that time, and he is going to call them. They're going to believe in him, and they're going to come back to the land of Israel. In chapter 11, verse 10, uh, we use the word roar. He will roar for them, remember? And I described also the word uh, that he will whistle or hiss for them like a shepherd calls his own sheep and they know his voice and they follow him. Someday they're going to do that. Here's a great passage in Zechariah 8, beginning in uh, verse 20. It says this in Zechariah, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, It shall yet come to pass that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many cities and the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts in those days, listen to this, it shall come to pass that ten men out of, uh, shall take hold out of all the languages, ten Gentiles, uh, all the languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew. They'll grab a Jewish man and say, we will go with you for we have heard that God is with you. And so even the Gentiles are going to want to come back to Jerusalem and, and go up to Jerusalem with 
uh, the Jewish people as they worship the Lord there. Zechariah 10, 8, again the Lord said, I will whistle for them and gather them, and I will redeem them, and they shall increase as they once increased. So we know that's happening. There's the call of God to come and worship. And in verse 2, there is the response that Israel gives to the call of God. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, uh, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifice, sacrifices of our lips. Take away our sins. Receive us. We will offer these things to you. And so when the Jewish people come back to their land and come back to see the Savior when he returns, they're going to come back in faith. They come back believing. They come back repenting of their sins. There's a lot of interesting descriptions of this time. Here's one in Zephaniah 3, verse 9 and verse 13. Zephaniah 3 says, For then will I turn to the people a pure language. Literally, the language there means lip. You have the word lip here in verse 2 also. I will, I will give them a pure language that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. Verse 13, the remnant of Israel shall do no iniquity, nor speak lies. Neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. You know, we read verses like that throughout the prophets, uh, but sometimes we don't stop to consider exactly what's happening. Israel returning to their land, having their sins forgiven, and worshiping and praising the Lord as they should. Zechariah 14, Ze chapter 14 is the last chapter of Zechariah, and verses 20 and 21 are the last two verses. So here's how Zechariah uh, ends his description when Jesus has returned to the earth. In that day, there shall be bells on the horses that say, Holiness to the Lord. Now, now stop and think about that. As the horses go down the street and the bells jingle as they go down the street, on the bells will be engraved, Holiness to the Lord. On the bells of the horses and in the pots of the Lord's house, shall be like the bowls before the altar. I mean, everyone will dedicate their kitchen utensils to the Lord. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. All they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seethe therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. And that's the end of the book of Zechariah. When all of the world is that holy, uh, rather than a world like we see today where, where uh, you know, it's mostly sin and sinfulness and uh, you look for a little holiness in the world we live in, imagine a world where it's all holiness and uh, where there is sinfulness, it has to run and hide. What a difference that will make. Now, the sacrifice of our lips at the end of verse 2 is something that uh, we all ought to practice. As a matter of fact, my Bible has a cross-reference cross to Hebrews 13. Let me read these verses to you. Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. 
But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Remember when Samuel had to scold King Saul uh, for offering sacrifices when he shouldn't have, and he said, to obey is better than sacrifice. Uh, for us today, we don't offer animals on any altar anywhere, but we have the, the sacrifice of our lips. We have giving thanks to his name. We have those things called doing good. Folks, that, that is our worship to God. That's how we worship. It's been a long time since I said this, but I think it's true for us in the age of grace. We don't come together to worship. We are worshipers who come together. Now, we can call our hour of meeting coming to worship, and I understand when we do that. But I think some people think today that uh, you worship for one hour out of the week. You come, you know, and you start uh, whatever they do, and you do it for a whole hour, and you call that worship, and then you go home. And then uh, maybe you come back next week and do it again. But actually, I think the New Testament describes us as always giving the sacrifices of praise to his name, always the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. We're worshipers. We worship constantly. The Holy Spirit is always in us. Jesus Christ is always before the Father, uh, bringing uh, our requests before the Father. We're constant worshipers before him. I ought to put this footnote in there because many of you commented on my message this morning when I talked a lot about how the law has passed away and uh, we don't have to do a lot of the things that were contained in the law. And I spoke specifically about the Sabbath. And uh, that's true. The Sabbath is not a New Testament thing. We don't have to keep a Sabbath on Saturday or Sunday. Now, uh, I didn't emphasize, and maybe I should, but for believers today... Sunday is our day to come together, right? And we call that worship, and that's okay. We come together and do what we do, but I like to say we're worshipers who come together. We don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And so Sunday should be reserved for that. Now, that doesn't mean you can't go mow your grass on Sunday afternoon if you have to. It's not a sin to do that. Uh, it doesn't mean that someday if your work demands it, you have to be there on a Sunday. Sometimes that happens. But what it does mean is for us as believers, we reserve this day for, for the Lord. I used to tell my kids when they were uh, teenagers and looking for their first jobs, and there were you know, usually fast food jobs somewhere that kids could get. And I would tell them, you know, if, if you uh, are applying for the job and they tell you you have to work on Sunday, don't take that job. Take another job because there will be another one. And you know what I find out? I found out that usually when kids are that conscientious about going to church, an employer says, I'd love to have you. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I'll get, you know, there's lots of people to work. Uh, you go to church on Sunday, I'll have you work other days. So a believer can do that in the, in the day and age in which we live and make those things balance. But basically, we are worshipers who come together. We ought to be giving God the praises of our lips always. And in the millennial kingdom, everyone will be like that. That's what we'll be doing as, as resurrected saints. That's what Israel will be doing, always giving him the prayers. The pots in their house will say holiness to the Lord on them. There you go. Start a new line of dishes called holiness to the Lord and see if people don't buy it today. It may not go over as well today. Okay. 
Thirdly, in verse 3 is the praise. Not only the call, the response, and then the praise. And so here is Israel praising, saying, Assyria shall not save us. Now, there's a historical setting there, of course, that they reached out to, to Assyria, Assyria for protection, but in the end, they will go into captivity to Assyria. So the people are saying, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. It's not the horses that save us. Nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods. We're not going to go to idols either and worship God. But rather, note in my Bible, the word you is capitalized here. But in you, the fatherless find mercy. In you, Lord God of Israel. In you that return and are standing uh, on the mountains of Jerusalem. In you, there's mercy. And that's who we will worship. That's where we will come. I love a verse in Jeremiah 9.23, and that old prophet said, Thus saith the Lord, um, let, not, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, neither let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. And then he says, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. In these things I delight. I talked about getting a job. You know what our career should be? A career in this world for a believer is not wisdom and might and riches. We have to have those things. We have to have food, clothing, and shelter, as we've noticed before. But if you want to have a career that worships God, make sure it includes loving kindness and judgment and righteousness. In these things I delight, saith the Lord. So no matter what we do in this life, whatever our career happens to be, uh, make sure we do it with this kind of praise, with loving kindness and judgment and righteousness. No matter how you work and what you do, that will bring glory to God. So Israel will repent. God will forgive, secondly, in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. So God will forgive. First of all, here are God's actions in verse 4. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. And my anger has turned away from him. The I wills are obvious here. I will do this for them. I will, I will heal their backsliding. Israel will be the people of God. Israel will have their sins forgiven. I will love them freely with an everlasting love, he often says. Uh, and with uh, that kind of love, I've drawn you. And my anger is no longer on you. My blessings are on you. So here are God's actions toward them. You know, also the Bible is full of these kinds of descriptions. Do you, do you remember in Isaiah chapter 2 where this is said, He shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Remember that? Uh, it's here and it's also in the book of Micah. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is God's blessing to Israel in the millennial kingdom. O house of Jacob, come and walk in the light of the Lord. I guess it's ironic that the United Nations has that verse carved on the side of their building in New York. 
uh, as if they can make it happen, as if they're going to make uh, wars cease and all the, the swords or spears will be uh, turned into pruning hooks and the swords into plowshares. It's interesting that in Joel 3.10, Joel turns it around when he describes the tribulation period. And in the battles of the tribulation period, beat your plowshares into swords and beat your pruning hooks into spears. I think that's more what the United Nations is headed for, uh, not the millennial kingdom. It will, it will take the blessing of Jesus to return to this earth to, to, so that wars are gone from the face of the earth. And they will be. From one end of heaven to the other, uh, the wars will be gone. And and there will be no more spears and there will be no more swords on the earth. And who can do that? Only the Lord Jesus Christ. And until then, it's only going to get worse and worse because men are still evil, men are still sinful, and they want these kinds of things. So God's actions toward them are spoken of here in a little way in verse 4, but there are much greater blessings uh, described throughout the Scripture. And here's Israel's uh, blessing then in verse 5. Uh, as God says to them, I will be like the dew to Israel. You know, the dew is always a blessing, the dew that falls on the ground, the dew that, that comes from Mount Hermon and, and falls upon the hills of Zion, uh, the psalmist said. That dew gives life to the earth. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. I was reading uh, old... Uh, Charles Lee Feinberg, uh, that Jewish writer, a great premillennial writer, and he, he made this description about lilies. Under, uh, listen to what he said. Israel then shall blossom as the lily, known both for its purity and productivity. A lily is one of the most productive plants, for it is said that one root can produce as many as 50 bulbs. Though it is able to multiply itself, it has no depth of root, and it soon fades. Then he says, but Israel shall cast forth her roots as Lebanon. And then he says, the cedars of Lebanon are proverbial for firmness and durability and the deepness of roots. They spoke of the cedars of Lebanon as we today speak of the rock of Gibraltar. <laughs> I mean, the, the cedars of Lebanon are always something stable, always something strong. And so God's going to take a little lily that can multiply but has feeble roots, and what does it say? And lengthen his roots like Lebanon. Give them life again. Give them durability again to this plant. Then also, by the way, uh, he... he uh, talks here about the, the shadows. Notice in verse 6, his branches shall spread, his beauty shall be like an olive tree, and his fragrance like Lebanon, and those who dwell under his shadow shall return. I thought of this because in, on Wednesday night we've been studying the book of Matthew, and we've been in chapter 13, where you have the kingdom of heaven parables, and one of those parables is the mustard seed parable. It's just a short parable squeezed in verse 31 and 32. And as I've, we've been learning on Wednesday night, these kingdom of heaven parables are parables about the kingdom, about the kingdom of heaven. And the, the parable of the mustard seed goes like this. 
another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Very small. Kind of, you know, here are the roots of the lily, and here's the, the small grain of the mustard seed. Which if a man took and sowed in his field, which a man took, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. I mean, what the parable of the mustard seed is saying, uh, it doesn't look like much, but it will grow into a huge thing that brings shade and even the birds rest in the branches. What will the kingdom of God be like? Not too many people are putting their hope in it these days. They don't think that such a thing like the kingdom of God could ever come to pass. But it will, and it will surprise the whole world and bring shade to people who rest under it. And so uh, his branches shall spread, his beauty like an olive tree, and his fragrance, fragrance like Lebanon, and those who dwell under his shadow shall return. Both of those things speaking of the same thing. And then there's the vine which uh, he speaks about in, in verse 7. They shall be revived like grain and grow like the vine. You know, Israel is often pictured as God's vine in the Scriptures. So here are some reminders of that in Zechariah 8.12. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, the ground shall give her increase, the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. So as the dew comes uh, to the earth, so the vine of God of Israel will grow. Habakkuk 2.14 expands on that kind of thought. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a beautiful uh, statement that Habakkuk has. And I like Psalm 67, 6 and 7. Then the earth shall yield her increase, and God, even our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all ends of the earth shall fear him. It's coming a time, as I said, when even the earth that God created will begin to produce and bring forth the fruit that God created it to bring forth. Sin has stopped that, and sin has curbed that. And because of, of all of the negative things that go on on the earth today, the earth isn't able to produce. But you take away all of those things, and you add God's blessing to that, and Israel will, will uh, be a fruitful vine, and the whole earth will bring forth those kinds of things. Universal blessings coming in the kingdom of God, folks. And that's a great time. You know, if you, if you were facing death and looking just to go to heaven, you'd say, that's okay with me. I, I'm, going, I'm going to be with the Lord. Uh, I've known uh, uh, two people this week who have passed away from cancer and two Christian people, and they love the Lord and right up to their dying day said, I'm ready to go and I'm going to be with the Lord when I go. Well, that's one, one step about our future, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Do you know then that we will live and reign with Christ for a thousand years on this earth, enjoying all these blessings on this very earth in the kingdom of God? And if that isn't enough, when the thousand years are finished, we live in that new Jerusalem forever. We've got quite a future ahead for us, right? Uh, what is it in this life uh, that, you would, that you would take in place of that? 
What would a man give in exchange for his soul? Shouldn't give anything. Then let me, let me make an application here about verses 4 through 7. This millennial kingdom that's coming, folks, it has to happen. The promises have to be kept. The promises of these things happening in the future are God's word, inspired, given by God himself. If these things don't come to pass, then the Bible has not been true. And God will have not told us the truth. So these things have to happen. Now, unfortunately, we have throughout our history different views about the kingdom of God that have distorted these promises, and they shouldn't do that. We are premillennialists, we, we say, and that is we believe Jesus will come back to the earth and he will do it. He's the one that will create all of this. Israel will be saved. Uh, the, the lost people will be taken off. The saved people will remain. The resurrected saints of the Old Testament will be there. The church will come back from heaven, and we will live and reign with Christ a thousand years. So when we look at these, we can make proper even application. We know that these, some of these things can't literally happen in our day, but we know they're coming. And so it creates faith in us. It creates praise in us. It creates thanksgiving from us. There are some that call themselves post-millennialists who believe it's your job and mine to bring about the kingdom of God. So we have to do the work in this world in order to make it good enough to be called the kingdom of God, post-millennial. And then when we accomplish that work, Jesus will return. The problem with that is there's a lot of false promises then. Here's what you're working for, and if you'll work hard enough, these things will happen. It isn't going to happen in, in this world. There are then the amillennialists who don't believe any of these things are ever going to happen. They're, they're never going to be literal. And so they uh, interpret all of these things in some spiritual or allegorical way, and they have a false re reality of the Christian life and how to live. We ought to understand that these things about the kingdom of God have to happen. They will happen. And so we're in a battle now. We're, we're in a time when we have to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're in a time where we may suffer for the cause of Christ, but it's okay. Because all of those future things we have coming are going to make it all so worth it. We won't even think about what happened in these days. But one last thing, if you will. So the wise will learn. The wise and the prudent are the words in verse 9. But first of all, Israel's testimony is given in verse 8. Ephraim, that is again Israel, the, the northern ten tribes, Israel shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? I don't have anything to do with idols anymore. I'm going to give them up. I don't want them. Listen to Isaiah in Isaiah 17 when he's describing this time. At that day shall a man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. He shall not look to the altars or the work of his hands, neither shall he respect that which his fingers have made, either the groves or the images. There's coming a time when Israel and all people of the earth will say, no more to the idols. We don't have any idols. We're not going to worship them anymore. And I think then God answers in the, follow, in the rest of verse 8, because when he says at the end, your fruit is found in me, this is God speaking. I have heard and observed him. That is, I've heard Ephraim and I've heard their cry. 
I am like a green cypress tree that is to Israel. Your fruit is found in me. And so will they learn? Yes, they will. Will God answer? Yes, he will. And he will be to them the one who bears fruit. And he is to us today too. So notice who is wise. Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. You can know them. God is the Lord is right. You can walk in righteousness. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. And so who is wise in this world? The man who has riches, the man who has has uh, wealth, the man who is wise in this world. No, it's the one who believes in God and walks in him. I want to end this with reading Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 7. You know, we have that great book, the, the book of Proverbs, to encourage us in this kind of, of uh, wisdom and prudence. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, and then he says this, folks, to know wisdom and instruction. Why, why are you writing, Solomon? To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. I'm writing to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. And then he says, a wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. And then he says this in verse 6, to understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings, yes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Doesn't that sound like verse 9 of our passage as, as uh, uh, Hosea ends his book with these same words that Solomon begins the great book of Proverbs by this? So Hosea, well, go marry a woman that's going to be unfaithful, but always bring her back when she strays. Because God has married Israel, and as, as often as she is strayed, God will bring her back and bless her. Israel was married to God. She strayed. God always restored her. And that restoration, when he makes Israel fully his wife again, and with all the blessings, that's called the millennial kingdom of God. And that's where we're headed. And praise the Lord for it. And God will bring all these things to pass. Okay, stand with me now, if you will, as we come to the end of, of uh, Hosea, looking at this kingdom of God and how he describes it. Let's pray and let's sing and, and uh, ask the Lord to bless it to our hearts. Father, thank you for the study of this book. These minor prophets are great, wonderful. Uh, they bring us right to the point of things that are happening. And Father, we look forward to these things too. When you will bless your people Israel, but as the church of Jesus Christ, as the bride of Christ, uh, we get to enjoy these things too. So Father, we're looking forward to that. Encourage our hearts now, no matter what we have to go through in this time in which we live, as we look forward to the future that you've promised. Bless our hearts. Encourage us tonight. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken's going to come and lead us in the song.